Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Leah Houston, an emergency medicine physician and the founder of the Humanitarian Physicians Empowerment Community, a startup that is seeking to help physicians to keep their credentials in blockchain format so that we can not only own our credentials, but the data we generate. It will help us to more easily move between institutions, prevent physician identity theft, and use that proof of identity to create a physician ecosystem where we can communicate with each other free of the barriers of bureaucracy. We started discussing just what blockchain is and then discuss how she sees that ecosystem evolving. They're still looking for early investors and she wants to keep this physician owned. So if you're interested, be sure to check her out at hpec.io. This and all of my episodes are produced by Karin Guilfrey, professional voiceover artist, and she can be found at caringlfry.com. And now, Dr. Leah Houston. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Leah Houston. She's an emergency medicine physician who actually has temporarily left the practice of medicine to focus on the blockchain. So we're going to talk about how that happened, why it happened, why it's necessary for physicians to enter into this. Um, Thank you, Dr. Houston, for, uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So first, let's just talk about what blockchain is, because in preparation for this podcast, I did some reading, and and by doing some reading, I mean I listened to a bunch of podcasts about what blockchain is. And so before we even get into um, how it can be used for physicians and our patients, um, let's just talk about what the heck it is, because I feel like when you talk to someone who who's not familiar with it, it's like saying the cloud, right? It's just this big nebulous place. And, uh, and it's really hard to define. But in essence, it's not, it's not really that hard to define. So whereas something like the cloud, if you have a bit of information, that is saved on one computer somewhere. And the word that they use in the field is that that information is siloed, meaning it's all in one place. Whereas with the blockchain, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, Leah, the blockchain, rather than it, information being siloed in one place, it's spread out uh, among a bunch of different places. And each one of those places is password protected. And, and there's some redundancy in it. So it's almost like you have a couple of pieces of a puzzle in each different silo and some of those pieces are repeated in different silos, and you really need to open all of them in order to put the puzzle together. Um, but if you lose maybe one or two, you can still put it together. Um, and and so, so this is a way of keeping things secure, because even if you break into one, you really need to break into all of them in order to have access. And in addition, it's referred to as the ledger, and the ledger is just the history of the the data. And so the ledger data is kept in these multiple silos. Am I anywhere near? You are very, very, very close. I would say almost perfect. Um, Thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good explanation. Um, and to like make it a little bit less obscure, you know, um, blockchain solves the, the problems that the internet can't solve related to trust. So if you have all of your data in one place, um, you know, there's, there's risk for security breaches, but also it means that you need that one place for your data. And without them, you're not able to store it and you're not able to use it. So when you're able to distribute your data and you have, you, you as an individual are the one that has the copy of your data, um, you no longer need a trusted third party because all of the information is distributed. It's not trapped in this one space. So, yes. Because if it's trapped in that one space, it could be corrupted and you no longer trust it, right? Like it's like um, in a bank account, right? So if someone gets my password and, and logs into my bank account, then they can just spend it and and whoever's receiving that money can't necessarily trust that it's coming from me because my account can be so easily hacked. Whereas if you really need to put all of these pieces together, it leads to more trust from more security, or is there something more to it than just the security? Um, well, it, it comes from security, but also, um, you know, it, it prevents censorship, you know? So right now we also have social media platforms that are centralizing our data as well. So it's secure. It creates more security on both ends. And could you explain just what the ledger, when all these people are using the term ledger, right? That that's what blockchain technology is. It's, it's a ledger. Pfizer and a typewriter and a calculator, and he's keeping a ledger like an old school accountant, right? Like what is the ledger that they're referring to? Right. I mean, so the term ledger is not really, it wasn't really a commonly used phrase outside of the accounting world until fairly recently. But essentially, you know, we need to document everything and we need to make sure that that documented, documentation is correct um, and that nobody's going to alter it, especially if we're basing a lot of important things on that documentation. So you're basing whether or not you're getting a mortgage on your home, on your credit, which is a documentation of your ability to pay. Um, you know, your bills, then you want to know that that is a secure, verifiable document that's immutable, meaning that it's, it's not able to be changed. And so they say the ledger, you know, but it's really just a form of documenting the truth. Okay. And so how are you proposing that physicians use this technology to their advantage? How is it, what is it that, um, what is it that you're doing? There's a lot of blockchain technology out there that's being built in order to fix a lot of problems. You know, there's problems with transactions. There's problems with supply chain management. Um, in the healthcare industry, uh, you know, they're trying to solve some problems with research and development and documenting what's happening in research. They're trying to solve problems of patient records and giving patients access to their records and making themselves sovereign. And so there's a lot of people trying to fix the user experience for enterprise and for patients. From what I can tell, HPEC is one of the few uh, blockchain applications that aims to fix the user experience for physicians. And as we all know, our user experience has been pretty crappy. A lot of us are leaving medicine. 
some people are committing suicide. It's so bad. Trying to pivot into uh, entrepreneurial endeavors, uh, cutting back on hours, retiring early, etc. And I, I think that for the most part, in my opinion, from what I've gathered from my physician colleagues, the majority of people who are having these experience of what's called burnout, but really is a result of systematic abuse. Um, they're having these, these feelings, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to leave medicine. They just don't like the way they're experiencing it now. So how does blockchain step in? If we are able to create a decentralized physician database of physicians, everybody that practices medicine, and we're allowed to give every physician an identity where it's attached to their credentials, then we, we essentially created a, a physician's guild, a digital guild of doctors where we're all in one space, yet because it's on a blockchain decentralized ledger, we're free to do whatever we want. Yet we're also able to easily and quickly come together and form a consensus around policies and practices when we need to. So it'd be a way for us to communicate with each other. That, that's correct. Well, let's let's take a step back because I know with HPAC first, what what um what was it that HPAC stands for again? It stands for Humanitarian Physician Empowerment Community. Okay, and what we were discussing when we were offline was that initial, or, or at least the first stage of this would be credentialing. Correct, correct for physicians. Right. So, in order to make sure that a physician is a physician and that we're not making a distributed database of non-physicians, we need to first check the credentials. Um, so in order to create a physician's identity, we need to first check their credentials. And then once their credentials are checked, they then become part of their identity. That's part of your data as a physician. Uh, that's part of your immutable data. You became a doctor once, it's not gonna change. It can't, they can't take your medical degree away. So um, your credentials can become part of your identity that are now portable owned by you. And so that is the first step to this process. So I think even before we get to the, the Physicians Guild aspect of it, there are a lot of inefficiencies in the credentialing system. When I first went into practice, um, even before I finished residency, I was filling out tons of forms, including information that was clearly redundant, because if I was finishing residency, then clearly I must have finished medical school, I must have passed uh, step one and step two. And yet I'm filling out all these forms and I have to get all this evidence that I, that I did all these things. And so there's, there's a lot of redundancy there. And now each time I apply to be on another insurance panel, I'm filling out the same forms. I'm giving out the same information. And that redundancy is time and time is money. And so, so um, there's a lot of waste in the system. And we're talking about trying to make the house of medicine and the delivery of medicine more efficient and more fiscally responsible, so it, it stops being the the GDP of a of a large country. And it sounds like if we were to keep our data in the way that you're describing, in this immutable way, we'd be able to get a lot of the, a, a lot of this redundancy and save a lot of money. Absolutely, and that's you know that's part of uh, you know that's one of the biggest parts of this. You know, having your credentials that are yours, that are immutable, that are val already validated and authenticated once, and they don't need to be validated and authenticated again, 
and having you as the individual physician in control of those credentials, not some legacy system, not you know your hospital, not the insurance company, um, that will allow physicians to move freely and you know move to different health systems and you know get you know get onto the roster of insurance uh, companies if they choose to do that much easier and much quicker because it's validated and authenticated on this cryptographically secure ledger. So why wouldn't we just have this, like what's the importance of having this on on the blockchain and in the possession of the physician? Why can't I just submit when I pass my boards, when I, when I finish residency, submit this to some siloed, possibly government organization that just keeps all of our information in some central location. That way, if a hospital or insurance wants to know, they know that they can trust the government and, I mean, in theory, can trust the government and uh, just get that information there from this siloed location. Um, was there uh, an occurrence or something that that happened we've, that we talked about online, that uh, offline rather, that that gave you the idea that we couldn't do that, that that would be a bad idea? Right. I mean, so we already are kind of in the system where we're giving our information during credentialing to a health system uh, and where, you know, we have our NPI, we have the federal state medical licensing board, we have the, um, you know, the state licensing boards. And, you know, unfortunately, because these centralized areas of our data are controlled by one entity, somebody on the inside could make a mistake and improperly use our data. They could sell our data without our permission, which is a very common occurrence that people don't realize. They call it de-identified data, but oftentimes, you know, if you really look at who's who, especially, you know, physicians, there's only a million of us or so, uh, you can figure out who's who if you look at where they were and, you know, some of their supposedly de-identified information. And, you know, something did happen to me that, you know, as this was occurring, I I realized that this is a potential solution. Um, And what actually happened, you know, people don't even realize, but we have something called a Medicare Medicaid PTAN number, P-T-A-N. And that number is necessary in order to bill for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, And so most of us have billing people that deal with this stuff. And so the billing person has, you know, everybody's who works in the hospital in a, in a file cabinet or in some on some floppy disk somewhere. And if they put your number, Joe Smith's PTAN number in, uh, instead of Jim Smith's on accident, then all of a sudden that's Medicare fraud. And because you're the one with the license, you're the one committing the fraud, not the billing person, because they just made an honest mistake. Um, and this actually happened to me. I was, you know, working in a different state in a a hospital uh, that I used to work for was continuing to bill with my P10 number. You know, they they claimed that they were doing it on accident, but because my license lapsed in that state during the period, it made the Center for Medicare and Medicaid think that I was working without a license. And, you know, I'm chugging along and all of a sudden I get a note from Medicare and Medicaid saying that my privileges to bill for Medicare and Medicaid are revoked. And I'm like, for what? And, you know, it was a bureaucratic nightmare. It took almost two months just to find out that they thought I was working without a license. Now, I'm, I'm very grateful that I was actually actively working in another hospital because I was able to very easily prove, hey, I was working in this hospital in this other state on the, those dates. There's no way I was working in both places. And they, of course, rapidly reversed it. 
But that was after almost four months of, you know, litigation and back and forth and me trying to just figure out what's going on because, you know, this government, you know, government systems are extremely slow and bureaucratic. So that's, you know, one example of identity theft that happened to me. And when that happened to me, I, I kind of started going online and, you know, talking to other physicians that have had similar things happen. And, you know, I'm definitely not alone. That, you know, that was a, a different kind of issue that's happened to others. But our identity, uh, you know, is is not well kept and it's not protected um, with these with these health systems and insurance companies. And it's often also being commoditized on. You know, we we control you know, 80% of healthcare spending, you know, with a physician's decisions, we're the ones that decide who gets CAT scans, who gets admitted, who gets surgery and who doesn't. And so that's, you know, 80% of the spending is controlled by us. So our data and how we spend that money and what we're doing and how many clicks and how long it takes between clicks and when we're submitting things and when we're not submitting things, filing claims, that data is extremely valuable to industry. And so we're kind of giving all that data away. You know, we're spending our, you know, our time on these EHRs. That's all also data. You know, it's our patients, but it's also ours. Um, and so this type of solution allows us to reclaim ownership of ourselves, essentially, in a digital space uh, and to not allow our, our data and our livelihood and our abilities and our hard work and our intellectual property to be poached any longer. That. I don't quite understand how that, uh, to me, that's a little bit of a leap. So I just need some clarification there. Because on the one hand, you're, you're talking about our identity, right? Like all, all of everything that we've accomplished in order to have the right to practice our exams, completing residency and fellowship and any credentials that we might have and licenses and in different states, there's, there's that, having that on the blockchain so that we have access to it and then it's immutable and verifiable. And that way, with a click of a button, um, we can just let this hospital know that we're legit and we can work there. How does that then translate to control of our data? Well, because, you know, our identity is our data nowadays. You know, people don't realize, but it's, it's, it's becoming one and the same. Our, our, our identity in a digital space is our data. Our date of birth is part of our data. Our, you know, uh, when we're doing what and when we're clicking what—that's data that we're generating, um, and that can be that can be collected in our own digital wallet for our data that's attached to our identity that we control. So, like, Facebook has my data because I log in. They know what my behaviors are. They know what I click on. They know long, they know how long I spend on each screen, how long I spend scrolling, how often I log in. They have that data. So you're saying that once we have that uh, identity and becomes ours, then all of that data is logged under that identity. And so because it's under that identity that belongs to us, then the data associated with it also belongs to us. Yes, if it's if it's properly designed from a cryptographic standpoint yes okay okay that 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 makes more sense um thank you for clarifying so so it seems that this could also be used uh for patient data right is that is that something that's happening right now 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's very interesting because there's a lot of people that are talking about patient data. And so there's lots of patient data. There's, you know, uh, how many steps you're taking and you're exercising. And sometimes you can get that data off Fitbits and other wearable devices and the, um, internet of medical things, uh, can capture this data. There's your lab studies that, you know, you, you, when you get your lab draws, that's part of your medical health data. There's your electronic health records, which are created by people that are caring for you. Uh, so, you know, we as physicians create a large portion of those, those medical records. So in this scenario, for example, if, if you really want to be a patient who has freedom to go to the hospital that you want and to see the doctor that you want to see, the only true way for you to have a self-sovereign health record is for you to have a physician on the other end who is also self-sovereign in how they practice medicine and where they practice medicine and how they get paid for their time and how much time they're allowed to spend with you needs to be a decision between you and that physician, not a decision that the healthcare system or an insurance company is imposing on the relationship. So I think more what I was getting at was, you know, with, with EMRs, right? we figured they would just all be able to talk to each other. And the reality is that they can't, right? Uh, one has next gen, one has Epic, one has um, all scripts and they, they can't communicate with each other. So it was mandated by uh, the government that by a certain, I don't remember the date, but that you had to be on, on EMR. And one of the benefits that was sold to us was these EMRs would be able to communicate with each other. And that way, if you got a CAT scan on one place, your doctor would be able to have access to that CAT scan in another place. And the reality of the situation is, um, at least when I was in residency, if you had a CAT scan at a community hospital, and unless they put it on a CD and physically sent it with you, we might have to repeat that CAT scan when you got to our hospital because we have no idea what the heck is going on. We can't use someone else's report. We need to be able to see it ourselves. So because there's no crosstalk, you can't have that. But if you had patient information that was on the blockchain, one, it's not siloed. So you would be extraordinarily difficult to, to, to hack it to get access to it. But then as long as you gave your physician the key to your ledger, then they would have access to all of your patient information, whatever we determined that to be, right? You wouldn't need all of their um, nursing notes from the time they spent in the hospital four years ago, but we could determine what was really high yield information, like their labs, their imaging, their operative notes, um, their medication lists, things like that. So now suddenly, um, using blockchain technology, we can, the patient and what you were saying before can go to any doctor they want because they no longer have to stay within their health system just so everyone has, oh, I'm a this hospital patient, so I have to go to this hospital doctor so that everyone has access to my information. They can really go anywhere. Right, absolutely. And you know, you're talking about the High Tech Act of 2009 <clears throat> where they essentially were like, <clears throat> EHR for everybody. And they started imposing this on everybody, but they didn't create any standards for interoperability. So, you know, we now have all these electronic health records that don't communicate with each other um, and are in some ways purposefully uh, not communicating because if a health system has to repeat a CAT scan, it's money in their pocket. 
Um, so, you know, they're, they're not really incentivized with the fee-for-service model to create interoperable records. I mean, now, you know, people are starting to wake up to this idea. You know, there's a lot of really smart people working on identity and working on uh, uh, mas master patient indexes where, where they're trying to get all patients into one space uh, so that they can, you know, uh, have identities and, and access their records. And it's really interesting. You also mentioned, you know, the nursing notes from four years ago might not be important. I, I think that that's part of why I think this type of solution with physician identity is important because the physician's notes, number one, are usually more important. And the physicians are usually the ones that help uh, communicate to the patients, hey, this is what we're gonna be doing. This is actually what's gonna be happening. Um, and those are the important, the important parts of the records that need to be easily accessed. Right, because not that that nursing note wasn't important at the time, but if that note was a significant event, it would make its way into the physician note that would then go into the uh, patient's chart and then ultimately in influence their uh, their care and be part of their ledger later on. Bingo. Yeah. Um, so sounds like you've solved the problem for physician identity. You've solved the problem for uh, patients being able to take their care wherever they see fit. Um, with this, with this technology, it's just a question of implementing it, which is clearly the larger problem. I actually want to take a step back to to the physician identity. Let's say you, uh, you you're already in the process of creating this platform. So first, just just tell us where you are with that. Well, um, you know, there's a, a lot of really smart people working on identity, um, and there's also people working on governance, and they're still figuring it out for the most part. Um, you know, they have the the World Identity Conference, and they they all get together. And I actually was speaking with some of them today. And, you know, they're really working hard to make this an interoperable system to try to not duplicate the mistakes of the past. So, you know, at this point, you know, we are crowdfunding from physicians to try to build this. Um, I'm really trying to keep it integrity-based by keeping it physician-owned. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I have a technical team that's ready to start moving on this process and start building uh, on these platforms that, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel. These technologies already exist. And so that's where we're at now. You know, I've, I've been traveling all over the country this past month. So, you know, I was in Washington, D.C., where, you know, other leaders, physician leaders gathered to kind of try to figure out a game plan and, you know, you know, practicing physicians of America, physicians for patient protection, um, physicians against drug shortages, uh, you know, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, and <clears throat> a lot of other groups. I was in LA speaking with uh, some of, you know, the leaders in the blockchain healthcare industry, and I was sitting on some panels with some really, really bright people who are, who are <coughs> also coming up with really great blockchain solutions. Uh, I was just also in Orlando uh, with the DPC conference, talk, you know, talking with leaders of the, of the DPC movement, including the Docs for Patient Care Foundation and the, you know, DPC Alliance and DPC Frontier. DPC being direct primary care, correct? That's correct. And okay. well, their model is very interesting. And they're, they're actually um, decentralizing already. They're decentralizing power um, uh, back towards the, the old way of doing things where there was just the doctor and the patient and that's it. 
Um, and, you know, that was part of why I, it was important for me to be at that conference because, you know, these physicians are really, uh, they're revolutionary ideators and they're really trying to, I don't even want to say they're trying to, they are, they're creating a new healthcare system. They're showing the world that this can be done more efficiently if you get the government and the insurance companies and the third parties out of the doctor-patient uh, you know, relationship and let the doctor practice medicine. Um, and their model is really, really revolutionary. And it's, 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 it's really picking up speed. I'm, I'm like so impressed. It was one of the best conferences I've ever been to. And I think that makes sense. But, but that being said, limited to a primary care um, arena, because when you get into the specialties, right, like you can't have a radiation oncologist who is doing direct patient fee, direct patient fee for service because the overhead required for something like that is going to be so astronomical that it would need to be paid by insurance, which is pooled resources from a number of people uh, who are who are all paying for that, right? Right. Well, I I don't necessarily think that it has to be paid for by insurance, but it does need to be paid for in um, a risk pool type model. Uh, you know, I don't really love the word insurance because from what I've learned after kind of spending some time on this issue and my time doing some, pub, you know, doing public policy, the cost of insurance is artificially inflated. Um, and that creates artificially inflated costs of medical care. Uh, the real cost of medical care is completely hidden. And that's another blockchain application for, you know, for the payment of healthcare, um, you know, price transparency is something that can be achieved with this technology as well. So yes, I mean, I don't want to say that you know, in in what the what the public is led to believe is that you need insurance to get healthcare, um, but and I do think you need to have risk pools, but I don't necessarily think the current model for insurance is the way to go. I actually think it's artificially driving up the cost. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I think you'd find it hard to disagree with that because of all the bureaucracy that gets involved with the administration of that. I mean, there are just so many uh, third parties involved in getting from the patient's pocket to the um, physicians and the overhead in the care uh, that, yeah, there, there are clearly a lot of inefficiencies in the system that, that, that could be done better, but we're, we're getting a little, little, you, yes. did, you did circle back to blockchain and I appreciate that. Um, but, but we should, uh, talk about H, HPEC just a, a little bit more. Um, so you, you, it sounds like you've been speaking to a lot of advocacy groups for physicians and for patients, um, because let's say you do get a number of physicians, and and actually, you didn't want to toot your own horn, sir. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do it because I've heard you say before that you've been approached by venture capital to fund your idea, but you have declined because you want to keep this physician owned. So I think you're to be really really applauded for that, um, uh, because you're trying to create a physician ecosystem here where we can we can control our our destinies, and if if that gets sold to venture capital, it's kind of Right. Not then, accomplishing what you what you want to. Right. It'll become more of the same because, you know, the whole consolidation of health systems and buying up of doctors' practices and things like that is what this is trying to fix. It's trying to reverse that trend. 
Um, you know, so allowing uh, malaligned incentives back into the system that we're trying to build wouldn't be helpful. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying not to be myopic on that because if, if this is going to fail, unless I take some, some venture capital money, I would prefer it not to fail. But I also, you know, this, this is a very, very big idea. And if it's implemented in the way that uh, I've conceived it and how I, and how, you know, after speaking with other physician leaders that have decided to come on board and how, you know, they, you know, they really agree that if this is built this way, this has the potential to, you know, decrease, dramatically decrease the cost of healthcare for patients and improve uh, compensation to physicians for their time, which previously, you know, we haven't been being compensated for. There's a lot of, you know, uncompensated administrative burdens that would fall away. And that time would now be able to be for the care of patients, which is what it's supposed to be for. So instead of filling out tons of paperwork, you're actually seeing patients, which is better for the physicians because they're earning more income and it's better for the patients because then they're being seen more, uh, more, more efficiently. So let's say you do get a number of physicians to, to keep their information on the blockchain. Who are the gatekeepers that need to be addressed so that a hospital can get, you can give the hospital access to your information so they're able to verify that you are who you say you are and have the credentials that you say you have, right? Who's, who are the gatekeepers there? Because right now, what's the stop? Why would a, why would a hospital say, sure, uh, HPEC, I, I've, I've heard of that. We can just get your data from there rather than using the same inefficient system that they're using. Well, you know, what they're doing right now is they're calling hospitals and they're making sure that your, your um, medical degree is real and they're making sure that you weren't, had, don't have any recent lawsuits, you know? So um, if you, if your hospital or if your health system that you used to work for is, you know, has permission to access to your identity and they can put on the chain that you're in the middle of a lawsuit, um, you know? Number one, is this going to completely eliminate the need for them to do anything other than just connect with you and your identity? Probably not. They're probably going to want to do their due diligence on their end. What this is creating is a system for physicians to not have to do any more burdensome paperwork around this. Um, for the physician's part to be done on this end, if that makes sense. So you would then say to the hospital, here's my key, here's all my information, but what might actually happen is the physician, the, the hospital says, great, here's this stack of paper. You still need to fill that out. Well, so my, um, so the way, if this is built the way that I conceive it, that won't happen. And the reason it won't happen is because there'll be so many people on the platform, they won't be able to do that. Okay. So you get enough physicians that just say, if you want me to work for you or with you, this is how you get my information. And because we have so many physicians in the ecosystem, if everybody's saying that, so that's where the leverage is. The leverage isn't uh, convincing the government or convincing the hospital systems that this is okay. You get enough physicians on the ecosystem that then say, this is how you get my information. And if you don't want to do it this way, then you're not going to have any anyone working there because this is how you get all of our information. Bingo. Okay. That's quite a few physicians that you'd need to get in order to have that type of leverage. 
Yeah, my goal is to have 200,000 by 2020. One fifth of physicians, I think that's, what is it? One quarter, right? There are 800,000 practicing physicians. So that's, you're saying one quarter of um, US physicians would need to be on this platform. I don't think that they need to. I think that if we reached 50 to 70,000, it would still be powerful. But my goal is bigger than that. I think maybe regionally, right? You're in, you're in New York. I'm on Long Island. We've already got two physicians in the ecosystem. We just built from there. <laughs> I totally agree. And the thing is, is, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, suggesting that we strong arm the industry into doing it our way at all. You know, I'm suggesting that we create a system and a front-facing application that's so, you know, user-friendly, that's so trusted because it's on this, uh, this cryptographically encoded and secure ledger that they're happy to use it because they're, you know, that these systems spend a lot of time and money on this, on this credentialing problem. There's a lot of redundancies, there's a lot of mistakes, and there's a lot of waste. If we create something that's easy for them, that makes their life, you know, that makes their life easier, then, um, you know, the only, why wouldn't they want to, to utilize this, this platform? You would probably just need some bold early adopters that then show how simple it is and cost effective it is. And then it, it snowballs from there. Absolutely. So there was something that you discussed earlier that I want to circle back to just because, because we're, we're running low on time. You know, I keep on referring to it and I don't know whether I, I did or I got this from you as, as the physician, as the ecosystem where uh, physicians can communicate with each other. Cause that's the other end of this that you started to talk about and then kind of went to, went to a different place. So, you know, physicians are a guild, right? We know that because who decides how many physicians there are? Well, physicians who decides mm-hmm. how you get your license and this is all decided by us and that makes us a guild. So, so how would you use this technology for us to be able to more effectively communicate with each other and thereby make some collective decisions? Yeah. Any, anybody who's been a member of any national or regional medical association knows that, you know, as the groups grow, they begin to kind of collapse and implode on each other when it comes to decision making. Um, and you know, a lot of times you put in layers of regulations, you put a board of directors, you put co committees, co committees, and as this happens, efficiencies start building. Inefficiencies, sorry, not efficiencies. So you know, as groups grow um, and as people kind of aggregate around a shared idea. It, the um, movement towards actionable outcomes towards that idea starts becoming slow and sluggish because it's just it's not an efficient way of or there's no there's no efficient way of organizing. So blockchain governance platforms allows the individual um, to you know tag their identity to different ideas. You can create micro communities around shared ideas. Uh, you can collaborate and convene on a, a, what appears to be on a, a front-facing app like a social media platform or like Slack or Facebook, um, where you can kind of um, come up to a, come to a consensus with groups and not have hierarchy, not have a need for a board of directors, not have a need for committees, uh, because it, you can uh, you know have a cryptographic code that allows people to organize through through um, the blockchain. I know you said there are some inefficiencies, but some might argue that we we have this system through our specialty societies 
or the American Medical Association, but those also sometimes have some conflict of interest, right? Where where the people running the organizations um, have have an agenda and do their best to uh, work with the, their their members, but there are some inherent conflicts of interest there, and so it seems like by decentralizing that, you get rid of those those underlying conflicts of interest that are in the organizations. Right. You get rid of the conflicts of interest. And then you also get rid of the um, the temptation for conflicts of interest because there's nobody on the top. But without the bureaucracy, how do you then affect your will? Right. Like, let's say um, all of the otolaryngologists in uh, the mid-Atlantic states uh, decide to vote on someone proposes a, a vote on something and we all unanimously vote to I don't know, do something. And what what then happens to that? That sounds like that might just go into the ether, right? How do we then use that to affect change? Well, let's take the no balance billing law in New York State right now. That's something that's that's actually happening. Um, and subspecialists are refusing to cover the emergency departments because they're not being guaranteed payment anymore. And if they're not being paid, they're not even... If, if they don't get payment, they're not allowed to bill the patients. So they're disincentivized to cover emergency departments. So, you know, a lot of physicians were against this legislation, but it was put, you know, it was created anyway. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, people didn't even know it was happening. Uh, the people that did know it was happening were too busy to do anything sometimes. Um, and the ones who did try to do something, they were out moneyed and outnumbered by special interests. Um, so, you know, imagine if you could very quickly and easily be made aware of things like this on a monthly or weekly basis, um, you know, delegate and have, you know, champion, you know, physician champions be incentivized to do research lobbying around these issues. And then, you know, to be able to vote and say, hey, okay, of all the laryngologists, how many of you would stop covering emergency departments? And then we publish that data to the public. Hey guys, did you know that if, you know, this bill is passed and you have, you know, a car accident, uh, then you will not have a maxillofacial plastic surgeon to fix your face, you know, and that kind of thing would have the potential to change the votes of the people, um, and to, to make people aware of what's actually happening. And if we can do it in an efficient way, um, where, you know, physicians aren't spending so much of their time, you know, trying to figure things out and where, you know, if something is affecting more than one specialty, those specialties can collaborate together. Um, where right now, if you're only a member of the, you know, I don't know what the specialty society is for otolaryngology, but you're only a member of your specialty society. And then the GI doctors are only a member of theirs. And the plastic surgeons are only a member of theirs. There might be legislation that, you know, affects everybody, but because you know, they're all kind of spread out. They're not potentially not communicating and they could be, um, you know, collaborating on these types of things. So, you know, and the way, the way the HPAC platform aims to do this is by incentivizing every physician on the network to generate income on the network. So if you get paid through the network, um, you'll be incentivized to do so. And when it, when it happens, a small transactional fee, 2%, will be taken and put into a pot. Um, and that pot will then be delegated to 
different services, whether it be direct payment, malpractice, um, you know, legal aid for physicians who have had, you know, a run-in with, uh, you know, the system, an, an unfair run-in with the system. Uh, you could delegate a certain amount of money to lobbying efforts, and you could do that with your individual vote. So right now, a lot of people don't like to give money to these legacy systems, partially because of the potential collusion and the corruption that you talked about, but also because they don't know that their money is going directly towards something they care about. But in this type of technology, you can delegate your financial contribution directly to what you as an individual are voting for. And so, um, you know, I think it solves a lot of the problems that we as a physician community have around us, you know, kind of having differing opinions, being fragmented, not really wanting to work together, you know, feeling uh, very, uh, you know, connected to your specialty and things like that. It it encourages community and it encourages, encourages a more tribal uh, mentality around the practice of medicine as a whole. You know, we all went into this to take care of people. And how are we going to fix the system so that we can take care of people again? How are we going to do that together while also preserving our own sovereign rights? Well, I think that is an excellent way to uh, to, to finish up the talk, an excellent summary of of what you're trying to do. Uh, where, where can people find you? HPEC.io. So www.hpec.io. That's our website. Any Anything else? Uh, this is quite a comprehensive talk. Was there anything else that you want to mention uh, before we wrap things up that you think we may have missed? No, I mean, I think I just, I want people to have hope. I want people to realize that you are still the person that you you were when you entered medical school. You're still that person. Uh, you still can make a difference. It's not, you know, I, I know that there's been a lot going on that makes people feel helpless lately. And and it's, it's, it's not a hopeless situation. We do have the power. We have a new technology that can help amplify that power. We just need to agree to use it. That's it. Well, if you can bounce back from having your identity stolen and someone bill under you and then not be able to work for a while, well, if you can bounce back from that, then I, I think we can, we can all bounce back. So thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to me tonight. I've really learned a lot. And it's uh, thank you for everything that you're doing for the physician community and for our patients. Thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for listening. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash physician's guide to doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.